This is Preble Hall. Preble Hall podcast is brought to you by the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome to Preble Hall. I'm Claude Barraby, director of the United States Naval Academy Museum, and welcome to the first episode of Preble Hall, where we'll talk about history, naval history specifically, with a variety of hosts and guests. Our guest for the first episode is Kate Jameson, a graduate student from the University of Exeter, a sailor, adventurer, and social media star, especially in naval history. So if you're in naval history and you aren't following Kate Jameson, you're missing out. Kate, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. The first question should be an easy one. How do you feel about Brexit? (laughs) I am not going to dignify that question with a response. (laughs) Thank you. That is exactly the same answer you gave to our midshipmen. It was politically correct and perfectly acceptable since we won't talk politics on the show. Uh, You and I have known each other for a number of years now. You were working for a private maritime security company, Mm -hmm. and I was writing a book on private maritime security companies, and we were able to link up, and you gave me some guidance, got me some contacts for folks. And uh, how did you get into that field? You went straight from university to working for a private security company at the height of Somali piracy off the Horn of Africa. Yes. Uh, well, I graduated in 2013 um, from the University of Plymouth with international relations. I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on the implementation of counter-piracy policy in the Gulf of Aden. Um, how I got into working in that was a slightly, I don't know, circuitous route, I suppose. I uh, tailored my LinkedIn to everything piracy and just looked at everybody's LinkedIn profile <laughs> that was working in piracy, hoping one of them would look back at my profile and go, oh, look at this girl, and that worked, and I ended up getting into working for um, a maritime security company in logistics. Was that by serendipity? Was it just timing that you had already started looking at this before really the height of piracy of Somalia? Yeah, so I think it was, I mean, it was the kind of that time where it was starting to get slightly, where it was reducing slightly, but not enough that it, it wasn't still a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess it was just luck that somebody came across my profile, saw that I'd written my dissertation on it, and they happened to be looking for somebody at the the right time, I guess. What kind of things would you have to do for the, for a company like this? These are the ones that put the armed guards aboard the ships. Yes, yeah. So um, I started out doing logistics, um, booking flights, sorting out visas, making sure guys and guns got from A to B. Uh, then I started working operations, so helping with a little bit of risk management, helping um, with policies and audits and all of those really exciting, uh, exciting but important things to do. Logistics, logistics, yeah. logistics, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah, um, which is what I'm doing now, actually. So not much has changed. That's great. But your your first love is Nelson. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> you, when I was over in England last year, I met up with you and a couple of naval historians and had an incredible tour of HMS Victory. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you visited the ship? Uh, I was about eight uh, and I went with my parents, and I still remember the smell of victory. It hasn't well, it hasn't really changed that much in what twenty one years. Wow! <laughs> um, and my dad bought me a book on Nelson, and that was the end of that. Really, I haven't really stopped reading naval history since. What What was it? Do you remember that attracted you to that particular subject? Because you might have gone, you, you could have gone to other ships or studied other admirals. What was it that drew you to that subject? Uh, initially, I think I thought I wanted to be a pirate, and I thought Nelson was a pirate because he had a pirate ship, um, which obviously HMS Victory is not. Uh, but 
obviously the book that I picked up I think it was sort of aimed at children so it focused on the slightly more exciting parts of his life um the Nile Copenhagen Trafalgar um and I just found it fascinating all of these battles and the idea of all these ships meeting in one place for a for a big battle so we, we just celebrated or a number of us celebrated yeah. <laughs> an anniversary earlier yes. this week and what was that Trafalgar day right. um the anniversary of the battle of Trafalgar mm-hmm. Tell us about Trafalgar. I mean, there are going to be people who know about Trafalgar, know why we commemorate it, uh, know a bit of history. But from your perspective, what is it about Trafalgar? What happened? So Trafalgar um, is actually quite an interesting one, to be honest. Um, We'd been chasing the French around the Mediterranean for quite a long time. Uh, Then I think it was Collingwood was blockading them and the Spanish into Cadiz, trying to draw them out at every possible opportunity. Admiral Villeneuve, who was commanding the French fleet, was pretty much on his last legs, about to be fired by Napoleon, who'd already written to him, pretty much telling him that he was going to be replaced. Uh, And so he kind of had to make his move, as it were, and try and keep his job more than than anything else. Um, Nelson obviously was trying to fight to beat, and I think the words he used were annihilate the French, um, yeah, so it was, it was just a very... What advantages did the did the Royal Navy have over the French at this time in, in terms of either the ships or the, the guns or the personnel? What were the big differences between the two? I mean, in terms of ships um, and firepower, we were actually outnumbered um, against the combined fleets of France and Spain. Uh perks or our benefits I guess came from the fact that we were better trained so at the point that Trafalgar happened the Spanish were just taking anyone pretty much that they could get um, and recruiting anyone that they could the French much the same the French fleet were struggling they had a lot of people sick they in some cases had no clothes and uniforms for their men Um, especially in terms of training there were problems um, numerous problems the main one that comes out in every single argument is gunnery, uh, which is kind of what I'm studying for my my master's dissertation. Um, the French used to have a core of a core of seamen gunners. Uh, when the revolution came around, they got rid of it and suddenly went, "Oh, hang on, we haven't actually got any of these trained gunners anymore." Um, the British regularly drilled their gunners um, and their gun crews, and so by the time Trafalgar came around, we were we were a slick slick operation, as it were. Um, and the Spanish soldiers that were manning the ship just to make up numbers and the French soldiers manning ships to make up numbers just didn't really have anywhere near the capability that the British fleet had. So the, so most of the most of the sailors on the, in the Spanish fleet and the French fleet were actually not sailors at all? Uh, so, no, there were lots of sailors. Um, but I was reading something recently about the, I think it was the Santissima Trinidad, the largest ship mm-hmm. at Trafalgar, the Spanish, Spanish ship. Um, and I think it said something like 75 to 80% of the men on there had never been to sea before in their lives. Um, and if you suddenly think about that and put it across the context of a whole fleet um, and how many people hadn't been to sea, whereas the British fleet, pretty much everyone was trained or they'd been to sea before. Um, it, yes, I mean, it's vast differences. Was the training something that was a, a fleet-wide effort? Was it something specific to Nelson? Because each commander, <coughs> each captain, each admiral has a different way of doing things. Was this simply his way or this was fleet-wide? Um, Well, in terms of gunnery, everyone did it differently. Um, Some ships notoriously drilled their crews regularly. Um, A lot of the ships that were in the Channel Fleet on blockade duty regularly ran drills and practiced because there was nothing else to do. They were sat around keeping the French in harbour for so long that they needed to entertain and occupy themselves. 
Um, the French, I'm looking at their training at the moment and in terms of their gunners to begin with, they were actually artillery soldiers that had just been to sea a few times and they built up into a kind of regiment, I suppose, of men that could go to sea and fire the guns on, a, on board a ship. Were the ships significantly different between the various countries, the technologies, the, the capabilities? Uh, one of the well, again, go, going back to gunnery, just because it's my uh, my thing, I suppose. Um, one of the main factors I would say in terms of firing was that we had flintlocks on our on our guns. So, whereas previously you would be loading guns and firing as and when you could, it meant that we could load ours and fire them all at the same time without any kind of I don't know what the word I want is really. You could you could fire them in succession, basically, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Um, all at the same time and just deliver a devastating broadside, as it were. Was the ship architecture very different between the the countries as well? Reasonably, but um, by that point, I think a lot of a lot of people were sort of using the seventy four gun sort of third rate kind of style of ships. Um, ship building and types of ships are not my huge yeah. my huge thing, so I couldn't tell you exactly. We had plenty of ships at Trafalgar that were actually French prizes that we'd taken um, and just taken on taken on to be our own ships. And that carried on. And not unusual in our Navy either. No. Uh, where we would capture something. Or you got USS President under Stephen Decatur, which became HMS President for yep. a time. And uh, the Chesapeake as well. That's the right. USS Chesapeake became HMS Chesapeake. Sorry to <laughs> sorry to rub that one in a little bit. <laughs> That's all right. We, we each have our victories <laughs> and our losses. In, in the UK... How extensive are the, are the commemorations or the celebrations for Trafalgar Day? What are they like? So we have a national Trafalgar Day parade every year. It's mostly sea cadets that get involved. Um, there's usually a platoon, I guess would be the word I'd use for the army cadets, the air cadets. Um, there's usually some some naval personnel there as well. Each of the sort of Nelson naval memorials tends to have a wreath-laying ceremony. So I live near Portsmouth, um, and there's a statue of Nelson in South Sea, mm-hmm. which has a wreath-laying ceremony on Trafalgar Day. Um, they do a commemoration on board the Victory. So, yeah, the, the, I mean, it's, it's quite well well celebrated. Most of the Royal Naval Associations in the country have Trafalgar dinners or those sorts of things. It's been more than 200 years. I mean, what, what effect does this have? What does it mean to the people who are celebrating this particular victory? I think for me personally, I just enjoy the history of Trafalgar. Um, was it the most famous battle, sort of sea battle? Probably not, but it's probably one of the most well-known. Um, and I think partly that's just because Nelson Nelson died and he mm-hmm. was such a admired person that it's just kind of stuck in people's memories. You've got Trafalgar Square. You can't go anywhere in London without there being a Lord Nelson or a Trafalgar or... Um, and anywhere else as well. Gibraltar is probably one of the one of the best places for that. Everything is, everything is Nelson and Trafalgar. Um, but... I think it's one of those things we tend to romanticize battles at sea quite a lot. Um, Why is that? I don't know. I think it's it's kind of that romance of the age of sail and these sailing ships and people tend to forget the kind of grim and gory details that, you know, actually a battle at sea was very, very violent. People would be losing limbs left, right and center. There'd be bodies. Um, you wouldn't know what was going on. There'd be so much smoke. You're just firing. And actually, when you try to break it down into the accuracy of gunners or the accuracy of crews I don't think half the time they knew what they were actually firing at because you would you just couldn't see there'd be so much smoke if you think about the number of cannons and guns at Trafalgar firing at the same time and the smoke you I think a lot of it would have come down to luck 
how many would there be on an average ship? And the, these are normally ships of the line that fought at Trafalgar, not the frigates. Yeah. Um, I think there were, I mean, there were a couple of frigates at Trafalgar sort of further further back. Mm-hmm. Um, There's actually a really interesting article by a guy called Tony Beals, I think his name is, um, and he analysed what every single ship at Trafalgar was doing at the time, looked at their um, positions, worked out where they were, worked out what they should have been doing, worked out what the captain said they were doing, <laughs> uh, which actually wasn't anything anything like what they were actually, they weren't in the right place to have been doing what they said they were doing, but they wanted to sort of give off this, we were part of it, you know, we all took part. Um, it's a very interesting article. But the ships at the time, like I said, there were frigates, um, Victory, has over 100 guns. The Santissima Trinidad was was huge. I think it was one of the largest ships probably in the world at the time. Um, lots of 74 guns, 64 guns. And you just think about all of that going on in one very small area, really, um, when you look at it. And it, it's crazy, crazy. Who was Nelson? Who was Nelson? Yeah. How would you describe you? I mean, you've been studying him all your life. You were on a, you were on a game show, weren't yeah, you, about ma- Nelson? Yeah, Mastermind, yeah. Um, what, what was, what's Mastermind for so the folks Mastermind here? So Mastermind is a quiz show. You have, goodness, maybe two, I can't even remember, two minutes, two and a half minutes on your specialist subject. So you pick a subject that you know inside out. They ask you questions. It's timed. You have a light in your face and you're in a black... I mean, the guy that designed Mastermind based it on his experiences being interrogated by the Gestapo, which kind of gives you an, gives you an idea of the uh, the pressure, I guess, that you're under. Um, and then you have a general knowledge round, um, which could be on anything, sports, culture. And so you selected Nelson. Yeah, so my topic was the life and How'd career of Lord Nelson. Uh, I got to the quarterfinal. I came last against some people that chose things like Tintin and African big cats. Um, but yeah, it went it it went as well as it, it could when you're 21 and you've never been on TV and it's, it's quite a scary it's, thing to impressive. do. <laughs> what, what kind of questions did they ask? How general or how specific did they get on Nelson? Very specific. So you, the whole thing with Mastermind, I think everyone has this idea that you have to know absolutely everything, but um, they ask you for book recommendations. They pick the questions from those books. So they don't tend to go outside of what's in those books if that makes sense um so I had questions along the lines of I think one of them was Nelson famously said no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship where um and obviously it was alongside that of his enemy um and those those sorts of things really so who was Nelson Nelson? how would you describe him oh it's so difficult so Nelson joined the Navy quite young. He went to sea under his uncle, Morris Suckling. Um, my favorite story about him running off, to, running off to join the Navy was his uncle being asked by his father if he could take Nelson. And he said, what has poor Horatio done that he should be sent to, to rough it at sea? Um, but perhaps send him to sea and perhaps a cannonball will provide for him at once and knock off his head. <laughs> so I don't think anyone had uh, any grand designs of him becoming quite the personality that he did or the success that he, he was, I guess. How old was he? That's actually a really good question. I have no idea. <laughs> My, What's the year today? 2019? When did he die? I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sorry. So, well, we, <laughs> he, he, he died, I think he was in his 50s when he died. Yeah. So he wasn't, he wasn't old in terms of yeah. where he was. And he'd achieved quite a lot at such a, a young age. He was achieving a lot more than some of his contemporaries. Because in the U.S. Navy at that time, we it was not unheard of to have a 12-year-old midshipman, a 10-year-old. I think the youngest may have been six 
uh, when Louis Goldsboro received his commission. His wow. he's, his father was the chief clerk of the Navy. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think he went to sea until he was eight or nine, so he had he had time to grow up, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think Nelson was, I want to say he was about 13, 14 when he went to sea. Yeah. Um, but he didn't come from aristocracy. No, and he didn't, he didn't come from a naval family. <laughs> his uncle was in the Navy, but his father was actually a, a rector in, in Norfolk. Um, so he grew up in Norfolk no real naval ties um i think throughout his career he was always trying to sort of better himself and become something something more when you read his letters he's very much trying to push for himself um and his status and especially sort of towards the latter years of his life i guess um a lot of his correspondence is talking about how he had all of these great victories and he has a baronetcy at this point and yeah, I mean, he's quite a status-focused individual. And now you did some research today within our collection mm-hmm. at the museum, uh, and we've got a number of 50 or 60 letters by Nelson. Did you find anything in there that either confirmed what you had already read about Nelson or was, was different? Uh, so I haven't I haven't looked at them in huge, huge depth because I only had a, an hour and a half or so to go through them. Um, but it was, it was interesting looking at how he wrote letters. So a lot of the letters that I read were from his time in Naples and Palermo. Um, which is where he met Emma Hamilton, of course, in Naples. There was a, uh, there was a movie with uh, late. Was it Lady Hamilton or that Hamilton uh, woman? That Hamilton woman, yeah, Vivian <coughs> Vivian, Vivian Lee? Lee and Lawrence Olivier. Right. Um, yes. Uh, so that's that's what I was looking at this morning, which is really interesting. Um, kind of backed up that status thing, I guess. His his signatures for his letters are some of my favorite things that, about all of my Nelson letters that I've read, um, which seems a really strange strange thing to be interested in but he always uses all of his titles as much as he can i think um how many titles did he have quite a few um (laughs) he was made a a baron i think baron nelson of the nile was one of them he was made duke of bronte um so a lot of the letters i looked at today he was signing off nelson and bronte bronte nelson uh bronte and nelson of the nile and (laughs) i mean you can get you can get the yeah. the gist of it from that but <coughs> how how old was he when he real or what rank did he achieve when he's really uh, making a mark for himself Ooh. <clears throat> i think i mean his m- he'd been doing quite a lot of things um he'd been at cape st vincent was probably one of his earliest i suppose I don't know, the time that he really became known, I would say. What rank was he? Lieutenant? Captain? Uh, Commodore? I want to say he was a Commodore. Um, And that was in February 1797. Famously boarded ships shouting, Westminster Abbey, your glorious victory, and took on the Santissima Trinidad and the Spanish, um, and became quite well known. I mean, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Um, And I think that's the first time that people went, hang on a minute, what? what are you doing? Um, but he became known for his slightly more, I don't know what the word I would want to use is. Um, he didn't tend to follow the orders that he was given in some cases, and it tended to work out in his in his favor. And he den- tended to do that quite often. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Where did. else did he do it? Oh, uh, so Copenhagen, uh, one of my fav- favorite stories, although I'm not sure whether it's one of those things that everyone everyone knows about it, but I don't think anyone has ever proved that it actually happened. So the signal was raised to uh, stop firing and Nelson went, 
oh, I put the telescope to his blind eye and went, oh, I'm sorry, I really do not see the signal. I have a right to be blind sometimes and just carried on. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, I don't think it's actually written down. It's one of those things that someone's made a comment and it's kind of become become legend, but I'm not sure that it actually happened. But it's a great, it's a great story, definitely. Now, we were talking earlier, you don't think that Trafalgar was actually his greatest battle. No, Is that correct? I would say uh, my, if you can have a favorite battle, uh, mine would probably be the Nile. Why? I just find it really interesting. Um, the fact that the French didn't seem to see it as as big a deal as it was going to be. They sat at anchor. They saw the fleet approaching and just stayed at anchor and didn't didn't move, which I've never quite understood. But I just I think that Nile was a just an interesting battle but Trafalgar is one of those ones like I said it's been glorified and romanticized and it's this wonderful battle but actually the Napoleonic Wars carried on for another 10 years afterwards um, and whilst they never really fought us at sea again half the French fleet still weren't part of it um, there were there was a fleet in Brest that didn't even leave a fleet in Rochefort I believe that didn't leave I mean if you suddenly added those into the the combined fleet it may have been a very different outcome Interesting point. What's the role of, of the gunners on the ships at this point? What, what what were their roles and responsibilities? So it depends what you mean by gunner. A lot of people, when I say gunner, um, assume the gun crews, so the guys that are firing firing the guns. Um, my research at the moment is on the master gunner, um, I guess would be the, the main title. And they're the guys that are looking after the gunpowder, um, measuring out the quantities of gunpowder. They created these sort of what's the word I want sort of rudimentary grenades almost um and all sorts of different different roles and responsibilities they stood watches on occasion uh and but yeah and mostly it was the the maintenance and supply I suppose for the for the great guns they would be considered today warrant officers or back in back in the day the equivalent of warrant officers yeah mostly so um they were standing officers um they tended to stay with the ship for the duration of its life from when it was commissioned They'd, why was that uh, so they joined the ship at commissioning, helped. So the guy, the prime one would be William Rivers. Um, he was a gunner on victory at Trafalgar. Uh, his records have actually remained and are, fas- are fascinating to read. Um, and I'm using them quite extensively in my research. But he talks about going on the first ship that he was on, going over to the gun wharf in Portsmouth and collecting the guns and checking the guns and making sure that the shot fits the guns and, you know, resizing it if you needed to. Um, and they would tend to just just stay with the ship until, you know, they were either promoted, went to a larger ship, or um, just, yeah. What kind of experience did they have to to earn this position? So some of the some of the gunners I'm looking at started out as powder monkeys, mm-hmm. uh, run, you know, the guys that run up and down with the, with the gunpowder, resupplying the, the gun crews. Some of them joined the Navy, um, you know, just as a, as a seaman, worked their way up as gunner's mate, um, sort of almost as an apprentice I guess to the master gunner and then and then took over um they had to be literate they had to be numerate when you look at some of the mathematical equations that they're doing to work out the diameters of shot um I mean I look at it and my brain I'm I do history I don't do maths but I look at it and there's these huge long pages of logarithm tables and algebra and they had to have a certain level of education certainly to be able to actually go to see and do this how how early did they have this this position? In what in what sense? In, in, uh, was it as soon as the as soon as cannons were commonplace to the Royal Navy or or the Navy under Cromwell, I should say, at, at, during a specific period? 
But when did this this rate this really mm-hmm. develop? I mean, mostly I'm looking at gunners in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I've been looking at some documents uh, and I guess kind of a manual, I guess, for gunnery that dates back to about 1650, 1660. Uh, so at least at least as far During back the as Commonwealth. that. Yeah, yeah, at least as far back as that. Was that uh, the same with the with the other navies, the French Navy, the Spanish Navy, the Dutch? Because that's during that's uh, during one of the first Dutch Anglo Dutch War. Yeah, because I, th- I think 1664 was yeah. the yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the Spanish or the Dutch. I couldn't really comment. I would I would make the assumption that they certainly would have had gunners because someone had to be doing this mm-hmm. for for all of the fleets. The French, as I said, they had a corps of seamen gunners who initially sort of started out almost as soldiers of the sea, I guess you would say. Um, and they were incredibly well-trained and drilled and had all this whole hierarchy of lieutenants and quartermasters and drum majors and all sorts going on, um, which the Royal Navy didn't do. We just sort of, we had a master gunner. They joined a ship. Um, that's part of my research. I'm looking at how they how they compare directly. Would you just have one master gunner per ship? Mostly, yeah. Um, Regardless of the size of the ship? Yeah, so on HMS Victory, the at Trafalgar, you had William Rivers, who was the master gunner. Uh, he had two or three gunners' mates, and then below that, there was there was a number of other people that helped him out. Where are you gunners finding? Oh, sorry, where are you finding your research? Where where are the sources for this? Uh, I'm going to be a bit cagey because I don't want people to go and, <laughs> to go and steal them. Uh, but they're a, in England. Yeah, they're somewhere a lot, in England. A lot of them are in the National Archives. Um, or Greenwich in the Caird Library, the Marit- National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Are there are there uh, portions of research that you haven't done that you just don't know if the records exist? Is there is there some sort of thread that you're pulling that you can't find? Uh, I don't know that it's that I can't find it. It's that it would be incredibly time-consuming to find it. Um, we have muster books, obviously. What you'd have one per ship, or at least one per ship, and it would list everyone in the in the crew when they joined. Usually, some kind of an estimate of their age. Um, but I mean, there are thousands. So to try and go through all of those to find the gunner or who you know track back those names through their ships is just it would be a huge, huge database. Um, but I'm kind of looking at social history of gunners. So. Uh, Again, it's one of those things, record keeping in, in those times was, was not what we've got now. You know, nowadays you can just stick it all in Google and find, yeah, <laughs> find most ev- things about somebody <laughs> if you needed to. Not everybody was a Samuel Pepys. No, no, yeah. absolutely not. Um, and even the people that did keep journals or diaries, you you can't really rely on them because a lot of the time these memoirs were being written to sell and make money. They weren't being necessarily kept all the time just as a diary for future generations it was i'm going to sell my experience in the navy and people are going to buy it so you'd kind of leave out some of the more mundane tasks i guess there's, or there's dodgy yeah so there's there's one uh, one memoir which i'm reading and working through and it was published in around i don't know 1920 a guy wrote up the the journals of this this gunner but when you go and look at the actual journal in greenwich there's a lot more information in that than is in the published version, and it's about half the half the width, I suppose, the thickness, half the pages. Um, and he's left out all of the slightly more boring things that go into the training of a gunner and the role of the gunner on board and kept in all the nice fun stories about how someone stole. There's one that I love where uh, a guy picked up the wrong bag. They tried to replace it, but they didn't know who it belonged to. They found these letters where he was writing to his 
his wife or or his you know partner um calling her his angel and my love this poor they imagined that this guy would be this you know strapping young man and he turned up and he absolutely was not and uh it just became a source we're very good in Britain of taking the mickey out of people I think is 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 fair to say and uh this poor guy came and got his bag and um for the rest of the the month while they were out sailing they were all referring to each other as my love and my angel as a joke just to <laughs> to take the mickey so it's a very British thing to do I guess but um some of those things have made it in but like I said the more mundane tasks tend to get left out but those are the ones that seem to be richer for a researcher or somebody working on their master's or the P- their doctoral dissertation, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I'm quite fortunate in the sense that because the gunners kept accounts, they kept logs, They, the captains often wouldn't be paid until the gunners' accounts and all the other you know, warrant officers' accounts and logs were back. So they had to be able to write reasonably coherently. Um, so their handwriting is actually legible, which is one of the main problems you have with working in anything from the 18th century. So nobody's really looked at the at the gunners before. Uh, not not in the detail that I'm trying to do it. No. Why did you decide to go for that that position? Uh, and why really, not sailmaker or one of the other uh, senior uh, senior officers? Uh, well, I was actually reading a book by a guy called Evan Wilson, who I think works or is something to do with the Naval War College in Rhode Island. Is it? I think that's where it is. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a book on the warrant officers and the commissioned officers in the Royal Navy, um, which I think was based on maybe his PhD or something along these lines. Um, and he covered the bosun, the purser, the carpenter, the commissioned officers, but not the gunner. Um, and the gunner gets a mention here, there, here and there, but um, he hadn't actually done anything in the book necessarily about the gunner directly and I thought it was something that needed needed some time lending to it I guess and it's it's nice to sort of do these guys some justice I guess because no one really know, when you like I said when you say gunner people think oh the gun crew um, and everyone kind of forgets the logistical side of gun crews not being able to operate without guns and gunpowder and that kind of have, have you asked him since he's still with us I mean have you considered uh, you know, why, I've I've I've, I've done this with some of my <laughs> research. Why didn't you look at this? I haven't actually. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't go off and steal it and suddenly go. Oh no, I haven't. I'm going to go and do that now. Well, we have a surprise for you. He's actually. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually in the other room. He's in the other he? room. Yes. Um, in terms of of resources, were the were the gunners uh, ever lacking in their resources in the Royal Navy that you could tell? Uh, not that I can see. There was there was so so far. I've come across some interesting interesting stories where they sort of stockpiled things um, so that they wouldn't run out. Were um, they supposed to do that? Was no, that <laughs> absolutely not? They were not supposed to do that. But a lot of them did, and I think it was kind of an accepted necessary risk sort of thing because you know they had it. It was there. It made more sense to have more than than not enough, especially when you're going into these battles um, like the Nile or Trafalgar, mm. certainly. In terms of the social history of the gunners, what what things have you found so far that you you can share? Ooh, <laughs> um, I or is mean, it too early? It's a little bit too early, but um, what I, I mean, some of the stuff I found so far is, is pretty much what you'd expect. They're mostly from coastal towns: Portsmouth, Chatham, Plymouth. Um, the likelihood is that if they didn't have family in the navy, they've grown up knowing people in the navy and gone away to sea. For most of the people in those port cities. The Navy was kind of a, I mean, it was just, it was around you all the time and it was 
what you did you grew up you went to see your perhaps your father had been to see then your son goes to see I've got one of my gunners um his wife packed off his nine-year-old to see to learn some manners so <laughs> carried on in the family name I guess we see a lot of portraits of naval officers during the age of sales we see this for the United States mm -hmm. Navy uh, I know we have one painting in our one portrait in our collection of uh, a gunner uh -huh. Asa Curtis uh, but how, in terms of of position, in terms of status, I guess the most the more senior in rank you are, the more likely you would have had a portrait, or if you were aristocrat, uh, are you, have you found many portraits of gunners in the Royal Navy? Uh, no, <laughs> not one. Uh, I found a rudimentary sort of pencil drawing of William Rivers. Um, and to be honest, I think half the stuff that has been kept about William Rivers is mostly because he was on the victory at Trafalgar. Um, a lot of records have been lost, perhaps because they just were deemed slightly not mundane or boring, but just not of any importance to be kept, I guess. Um, there are far more important people, Nelson, Collingwood, all these sorts of people whose documents probably take precedence over... I don't know, William Rivers from Bermondsey in London. Um, but yeah, I have one rudimentary pencil drawing. I'm not sure where it's even come from. Someone sent it to me. But um, I haven't come across one actual portrait of a gunner. There aren't even that many caricatures featuring gunners, unfortunately. Are there others of equivalent rank that you've seen? Uh, I've seen some surgeons, um, a couple of portraits of surgeons. Um, but yeah, I mean... I purses the bosun's not really there's the odd cartoon and like i said caricature sort of drawing of um the purser usually being a bit tight with the pennies and things like that but not 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 hugely earlier you mentioned impressment uh -huh. and the chesapeake i guess yes. we have to talk about that subject yeah. <laughs> after <laughs> yesterday yeah, i think i think we need to <laughs> uh yeah it was a it was a great lecture you gave in uh professor uh class what was impressment Impressment, uh, so the press gangs, which everyone's kind of heard of. I think when you say impressment, people don't tend to put two and two together. As soon as you say press gangs, they go, oh, it's the guys that they came in and dragged you from their beds or they dragged you out of the pub and took you off to sea for a life of misery and horrible conditions. Um, but yeah, it, it, it wasn't really that at all. Um, what was it? Or, or that badly, anyway. I think uh, my favorite thing about press gangs is kind of the idea that people, like I said, go and drag you from their beds. But I mean, there were lots of volunteers um, and it was just the way that they had to recruit. You know, we were at war. We needed men to go to sea um, and you need to get them from somewhere. And this uh, is during the Napoleonic Yes, Wars. yeah, yeah. Did impressment happen before then with the Royal Navy? Yeah, so um, I think pretty much it went as far back even as Elizabeth I. There, was, there were press gangs operating and from the Anglo-Dutch Wars, certainly press gangs were operating and sort of legally sanctioned uh, and it was it was just kind of a a necessary evil i guess you had to man your ship somehow um and get people do we have a sense of what percentage the royal navy of, of the personnel on the ships were that were there because of press gangs so there's some interesting work been done by jeremiah dancy on the press gang um and he has looked at the French Revolutionary War predominantly, uh, and he was saying that the figures are far less than we assume. Um, he was looking at those muster books that I was talking about, um, and going through and looking at who was a volunteer, um, volunteer in inverted commas, uh, and who who had been pressed, I guess. Um, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think 
I, th- I want to say 16% of the Navy at the time were actually pressed men, which is far. I mean, it's still a huge number if you think about the fact that in 1810, the Royal Navy had 146,000 men. Um, 16% of that is a is a vast number, but mm-hmm. it's nowhere near as many as people seem to assume, I guess. And that, how, how large was the Royal Navy at that time? About 800 ships? I don't know. Yes. I couldn't tell you off the top I'm of my head. I'm that, yeah. <laughs> what... Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the press gangs because I always had the impression, you know, you have these big mallets that they would uh-huh. carry around, and so you're saying that this was not as as common as they uh, did have. The, they did have the mallets. Um, whether they went around bashing everyone on the back of the head and dragging them off, I don't know. There's the there's always the myth of the king taking the king's shilling, uh, which was apparently happening in Portsmouth all the time. One of the pubs on the seafront in Portsmouth, actually, the London Tavern, which isn't there anymore, the landlady supposedly recruited 26,000 men for the Navy by dropping shillings in their beer. So they'd, you know, they'd drink it and suddenly the coin is at the bottom and they've taken the king's shilling, so they have to go to sea. Um, I think it's one of those myths that's kind of lasted through the ages. I don't know that it happened as frequently as 26,000 times in one pub, um, but it, it's a nice story nonetheless. So why were the British impressing American seamen rather than, say, India? Or because England ruled a number of other territories mm-hmm. around the world. They had India, Australia. Why the United States? So as far, I mean, as far back as the American Revolution, we were oppressing American men. And uh, the Americans weren't very happy about it, understandably. But, you know, we're British and we, we like to take what's ours, or we did then anyway. Uh, we th- I think we felt sort of as if we owned most of the most of the world or ruled the waves. or, um, But, it, I mean, it just came down to sheer a requirement for, for manpower, for numbers, really. You, you've got these huge ships and you have to find... I mean, HMS Victory had 850 men at Trafalgar. Um, that's one ship. That's a lot of people that you've got to find. Um whether they're volunteers or they're pressed. A lot of British seamen deserted the Royal Navy, ran off to America um, after the revolution and sort of around the time of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars because they got better money, they had better conditions. Um, They got treated slightly better. They were sort of treated as citizens, not citizens, but I mean, the Americans treated their men as citizens, not subjects. Um, And it was just just a better place to be for the British sailors. Are there estimates on how many... Royal Navy sailors deserted to the United States? So there's a statistic saying um, from the time of Jefferson, when Jefferson was president. Mm-hmm. And I think it said that 30% of the 70,000 men in the American fleet at the time were actually British. That is the American fleet in terms of the Navy, or does that include, say, the merchant ships both, and I fishing believe. ships? Yeah, both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think predominantly the merchant merchant fleet, actually. Um, it's the same as in Britain. The merchant fleet paid better. You had nicer conditions. You weren't sort of treated quite so quite so badly. But, um, I mean, it, it was one of those things. The Navy had its downsides, but then you also were sort of entitled to prize money and you had the chance to sort of better yourself and work your way up. There are quite a few people that joined the Navy as, you know, ordinary seamen and worked their way up and became officers. That does, that did happen quite a lot. The Navy promoted quite well on merit. There was a lot of sort of patronage and people helping, helping people they knew out, but the, there was the possibility to kind of work your way, work your way up. William Rivers, my gunner, um, his son, worked his way all the way up and became a midshipman and then went on to be in charge of the Greenwich Hospital. So, What was the Chesapeake Leopard affair? 
the Chesapeake Leopard of Earth. So uh, we're going to talk about two incidents. Yeah. Okay. So the this Ches- is the one that may be more common to to our. I think a lot of folks of, yeah, lots here. of Americans will have probably heard of the Chesapeake. I guess. Um, so there were four sailors from HMS Halifax, I think it was, that deserted um, to the Chesapeake. Three were American. One was a British tailor who'd been pressed um, called Jenkin Ratford. Um, he was kind of the ringleader. They stole a boat. They went ashore. He boasted about being in the land of liberty and all this kind of kind of stuff. They uh, hopped on the Chesapeake, I guess. Um, and off the coast of Norfolk, HMS Leopard intercepted them. The captain said he wanted to check for British deserters. This happened a lot. Um, and of course, the commander of the Chesapeake was less than inclined to let them come aboard because they were already annoyed with the British for constantly doing this. Um, and so the leopard fired on the Chesapeake, I think killing three men and wounding 18, uh, went on board, found these four guys and took them. The three that were American were sent sent back and Jenkin Ratford was hanged from the, the four-yard arm of his previous ship to be made an example of. The uh, the Chesapeake goes on to another incident during the War of 1812 and is lost. And, now, is that the... That's the ship that the is now Shannon? a mill? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, the Chesapeake took on the Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, we then, I think, famously, the the last words of the commander of the Chesapeake were, don't give up the ship, which uh, obviously we've seen in the U.S. Naval Academy. You've got the, the banner downstairs mm-hmm. that Perry... The, the original, that Perry... Had made up yeah. for, his, for his friend right. to... Uh, sort of as a tribute I guess to his friend unfortunately the ship did in fact get given up pretty much straight after he had died um, and we took her and made her HMS Chesapeake um, about six years later she got mothballed or sold off for, for scrap I guess for wood um, and now she is the floorboards of a mill in Hampshire um, and you can go and visit and there's a nice plaque about the, the Chesapeake and a American and a British flag in a nice case but Yep, she's now some floorboards, unfortunately. <laughs> now, this, the midshipmen who heard your lecture yesterday were, mm-hmm. were a bit taken aback, that, not by the Chesapeake Leopard affair, but by another incident you discussed. Yes, the uh, the Havana and the Constitution. So, um, I can't remember the year now. 1811, I think it was. Um, some men on board HMS Havana heard shouting and screaming and splashing from the water, and they found this guy swimming across Spithead, um where they were anchored. Um, it's just off Portsmouth. That was one of the major, it was a uh, major fleet concentration. Yes, Spithead. yeah. And a famous mutiny there. Famous mutiny in 1797. Yeah. Inspires Billy Budd, I think, from Herman Melville. Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, Spithead, yeah, so they had this guy swimming across to their ship. They brought him on board and he said that he was being, in, he'd been in forced servitude from the captain of the Constitution who'd impressed him. Um, so the captain of the Havana took a took a report. They went ashore, spoke to um, whoever was in charge in Portsmouth at the time. There's a report talking about how he was impressed. He'd never even been to America. He was Irish. He had no requirement or wish to be in the US, in the US Navy, especially on the Constitution. Um, in London at the time, there was a an, a an American officer, I suppose, who would liaise with the Royal Navy to check on, you know, American deserters or American impressed men and any unhappy people I suppose of which you would definitely say that Charles Davis was one uh we tended to kind of ignore it nothing sort of came out of it diplomatically at least um because we were a bit focused on the Napoleonic Wars I guess at the time um but it was one of those myths that British impressment 
was one of the main reasons for the War of 1812. But obviously, the from Ameri- a British perspective, from a British perspective, right. yeah. Um, but the Americans were impressing as well, um, and that wouldn't have been picked up. That fact wouldn't have been picked up if it hadn't made its way into the records of the U.S. State Department, I think, somehow. Uh, and people have now subsequently found quite a few other cases of uh, of the Americans pressing British Irish men. And part of that mythology where the press gangs would just go in and take anybody, mm-hmm. that wasn't the case. No. Um, there were standards. Yes, there were. Uh, I mean, sometimes you did just need to take anybody. Uh, predominantly, the Navy were looking for petty officers. They were looking for ordinary seamen, able seamen, men that had been to sea before. How could they tell? Quite often you could you could tell a sailor in uh, most of the port towns by their swagger, uh, the way they dressed. A lot of them had tattoos, you know, um, marking their trips across mermaids and ships and all these kinds of things. Um, I think the, they identified, especially the British sailors, as Jolly Jack Tar and they, people could pick them out quite easily. Um, the guys that had been to sea probably were slightly more weathered, I would say, around the face than some of the people that hadn't. Um, and it would have been reasonably easy to to spot them, I would say, um, personally. Was was there an age demographic that they were looking for? Yeah, so the the impress service, which was kind of an administrative branch of the Admiralty, um, set out guidelines. They were looking for men, eligible men of seafaring habits, um, so people that had been to sea, because you know it takes so long to train people up on these ships on how to do everything. That if you've got a guy that can just go in and vaguely knows his way around a ship it's much easier um they were generally looking for people from around the ages of 18 to 55 um that's not to say they didn't take people lower or younger or older but um mostly around that you had to be able to climb the rigging and go aloft and heave on line so you couldn't you couldn't be unfit or necessarily missing limbs and those sorts of things i mean there are a few people i read a story of a guy being impressed who had no leg and he just he became a cook basically um but I, I think that was probably a exception rather than the rule because you wanted men who could fight for you but if you were impressed were you there for a specific period or it would you would be considered you would stay on the ship for 20 years i mean i think some of the reading that i've done kind of implied that you would be impressed and that's you for three years sort of three three to five years um but a lot of a lot of the men tended to re re-enlist I suppose would be the American phrase but um, there I mean one of the the key things that I would point out going back to you mentioning the Spithead mutiny is that they had a lot of grievances at Spithead they weren't happy with their food they weren't happy with their conditions they weren't happy with officers that were treating them really badly um, but not one of them mentioned impressment as a grievance it was kind of one of those things that happened i think everyone sort of accepted that it happened um none i mean a lot of those men probably were impressed but none of them have listed it as a as a problem once they're on board and they're in the navy i guess it, it was just kind of one of those things that they accepted they got money they a lot of them sent it home to their families it probably wasn't i mean it wasn't the best life but it certainly was a career now there were some people who could present a paper, a certificate. Uh-huh. What was that certificate that prevented a press gang from basically impressing you? Yes. Uh, so some personnel, I suppose, that worked with the Navy or perhaps people that just couldn't go to sea were given a certificate that kind of acted, you know, how an ID or a passport works today. It would have your distinguishing features, your hair color, your approximate height, I suppose, your eye color, um, anything else that distinguishes you as a person, your name, where you are from. 
Um, if you worked in the rural dockyards, for example, um, as a shipwright or a sailmaker, you would be given one of these certificates because you're you're working for the Navy. Um, Does the Navy issue them then? Yes, yeah. And I mean, it doesn't help for them to suddenly go, well, we don't actually have any shipwrights because right. the press gang came and took them all away. Um, and apprentices, I think if you'd, if you'd been an apprentice for two years, you couldn't be taken away to sea. Um, there were some people that, like I said, going back to volunteers and inverted commas volunteers, um, if you were a debtor and you're in debtor's jail, if you had under £20 worth of debt, the Royal Navy would quite often pay off that debt in lieu of you going and serving in the Navy for a certain period of time. Um, it's not the best way of getting people, I guess. Um, and generally, from some of the statistics I've read on that, uh, it's mostly been people that have, been again, been to sea before because... You'd, you would they did take landsmen they did take these guys who'd never been to sea but it was mostly just for the more manual tasks you know heaving lines shifting and trimming sails and what so we had a few landsmen when you look back on our muster rolls what, uh-huh. what's a landsman the landsmen are people who just hadn't hadn't had any seafaring experience i guess there's so jenkins ratford probably would have been a landsman um he was a tailor that got taken a number of people that again it's just finding those numbers to to man those ships really Kate, thank you so much. Uh, it's It was wonderful to hear your lecture, and now you're going to be using the sailor adventurer part of your life this weekend yep. <laughs> for our the fourth iteration of our War of 1812 Schoolhouse at Sea, where we get underway aboard the Lynx, a War of 1812 replica privateer. We'll be taking 16 midshipmen aboard. You'll be aboard. We'll have a, a couple of professors aboard as well, teaching them throughout this weekend. So. Fair winds following seas. And if folks want to follow you on Twitter, and I probably shouldn't even <laughs> offer that because you're a big, big media star on Twitter, but uh, how can people follow you? Uh, so I have a blog, which is www.adventuresofkate.co.uk. Um, but I'm on Twitter at Kate E. Jameson. Um, and most social media is Kate Jameson. Yep. Right. Kate, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate you coming in and sharing your experiences and and your knowledge and uh, we wish you well thank you for having me all right take care thanks and thank you very much for joining us for this first episode of preble hall we hope you enjoyed it Uh, and again we will be rotating our our hosts uh i don't believe in having one person here and we've got a lot of folks who ask a lot of great questions so we hope you enjoy the show thank you very much